0: Hey, welcome to the Living Worship Podcast. I'm excited that you're here with me again this week. Um, We're going to continue our study in Judges. Um, You know, some of you might be asking, well, why are we studying Judges? I mean, isn't that book kind of, I don't know, outdated? Or how useful is that information, really? Well, here's where I come from on it. Um, God put it in our Bible for us to read to reveal himself through so if Judges is in the Bible, then we ought to know it, and not just kind of know it, but really understand it, and understand what he is trying to tell us through these stories. So today we're in Judges chapter 3, verses 12 through 30, and we're going to talk about Ehud, who was kind of God's assassin here. And we have some really important apologetic questions to bring up at the end, so um, let's go. All right, so chapter 3, verse 12 says, The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglin of Moab power over Israel, because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. So remember, we talked about Othniel last week, and Othniel saved the Israelites, and there was a generation of peace, about 40 years. But this verse here says, again, they did what was evil. Now understand when it says, again, it doesn't mean that they stopped and they started. It's more like um, it got put in the background and as soon as Othniel wasn't looking and he was dead and gone, uh, they went right back into it. In fact, it became worse. Now understand here that it also says that God gave the king of Moab power over Israel. He gave the king the ability to take over Israel. So verse 13 after Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, otherwise known as Jericho. Now, he probably built this site, kind of like a beach house at the oasis of Jericho, um, not on the site of the city that they destroyed, but probably very close by. And that was, like I said, it was kind of like his summer beach house, like this is his, his hang up place. And verse 14, the Israelites served King Eglin of Moab for 18 years. So the first time around, right, they became slaves for eight years, and Othniel saved them. Now, for 18 years, the Israelites are enslaved by another nation. Let's talk Moab for a second. If you remember, Moab actually comes from Lot, Abraham's nephew. Lot's daughters had the children that would become the nations of Edom and Moab. And when the Israelites were coming to the promised land, God actually said, Hey, you need to destroy all of these different peoples, but don't touch Moab. Well, at this point, the Israelites were being disobedient. God gives the power uh, to the king of Moab to enslave the Israelites for a time. But as a reader, we know number one, he goes to Jericho and builds a house. Well, from the book of Joshua. Joshua curses anyone who is ever to build there ever again, that it would be brought low and um, they would be inviting God's destruction upon them. So as a reader, we're expected to understand that this is going to be temporary. And then verse 14 kind of underlines it it for us. It only lasted for 18 years. But that also means that it took the Israelites 18 years, half a generation— to invite God to bring a solution for their problem. Before that, they were still worshiping Baal and Asherah and all the other gods that they had invited into their country. And 18 years in, they decide, oh yes, we remember Yahweh. We need to talk to him and he will hear our pain. And of course, he did. So a rescuer rises up in verse 15. The Israelites cry out to the Lord. And he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with the tribute for the king Eglund of Moab. So Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to king Eglund of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. When, 18, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. All right, so when it says in verse 15, a left-handed Benjamite, right, it's, you're supposed to be able to understand that means he's a tricky person. It's not this that he was left-handed, but the Benjamite warriors would train with their arms um, tied to their bodies so that they could be ambidextrous. They could wield swords and spears and all of that with the opposite arm so that when they were in battle, they would have the upper hand And that worked. I mean, most ancient warriors were right-handed, just like most people who live today are dominantly right-handed. And so that would give them the ability to dominate on the battlefield. And so God raises up Ehud. Notice it doesn't say that God talked to Ehud, just raised him up. That's going to be important later. So, and then he makes this sword. He puts it on his opposite leg, right? So nobody is going to suspect a sword to be cross-drawn off the right leg because everyone's right-handed. If there's going to be a sword concealed or openly carried, it's going to be on the left leg. So they don't think there's anything wrong with him at all. In fact, the king totally trusts Ehud. Verse 19, At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglin, I have a secret message for you. The king said, Silence, and all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waist came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. All right, so he's near uh, these idols at Gilgal, where this is a place where uh, it was supposed to be dedicated to God way back in the day. Um, but the Israelites have now um, completely lost reverence for the Lord. There's still pagan statues over there. And he sends this message to the king of Moab. And the king totally trusts him. I mean, this guy just brought him all of this, all this gold and treasure and and stuff. And he's probably thinking, oh, he's gonna let me know how he's gonna help me win the trust and be allied with the rest of the tribes of Israel, so that my rule can be further cemented here in this new nation that I'm ruling over. But instead, Ehud tricks him, and his secret message from God is actually a sword in the gut. So Eglin, he dies from where he's uh, stabbed. He dies very quickly. He bleeds out probably within 45 seconds and his body does not react well. The waste pours out. If you know anything about what happens to the human body when you die, sometimes it's really messy and your colon relaxes a lot before rigor mortis sets in. And so it's pretty messy sometimes. And this time is really messy. So Ehud, right, he locks all the doors, he, he escapes, and if anyone had saw him, they probably wouldn't think anything of it, probably no big deal. All right, verse 24, Ehud was gone when Eglin's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. They waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So they took the key and opened the doors, and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sirah. And after he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. Really important here. Normally. You do not go into the king's chamber when he has the door closed and locked. If you do that, you are probably going to die. The king is going to have you executed for intruding on his privacy. So of course they waited until they were embarrassed and ashamed. And so they go and they grab this 10, 20 pound key, which is what they were back then, and they unlock the door. And this whole time... They thought he was going poo-poo on the toilet, <laughs> I mean, back then, of course, they didn't have toilets like we did today, you know? But he had, as a king, special privileges. He had this special latrine in his throne room. How crazy is that? That's cool. He didn't have to go use a hole in the ground. Uh, we don't know how specialized it was, but it was special for that, all right? And then this king's beach house, right? So they finally go in, and they find him dead. At this point, it's probably been all day long because they don't want to die. And Ehud escapes. He gets back to the hills and he sounds his ram's horn. And the Israelites come down and they go to fight. Verse 28 says, He told them, follow me, because Yahweh has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. And Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. Now understand in the Old Testament, when they use round figures like that, 40 years is one generation, so 80 years is about two generations. Okay, It's not trying to be accurate. It's trying to let you know, generally, how many generations here have Past. When it wants to be accurate, it will give you something that's not a round number, okay? So what's the point of this? Why do we look at this story? It's it's 18 verses. It's not very long. Um, if you grew up in church, you probably still didn't even hear about this story, and the story is kind of graphic, right? So let's evaluate it then, okay? Some things that we've already talked about, but it's important. Israel did better. They turned away from some of their pagan worship under Othniel's leadership. But once he died, they just became more corrupted than they were before. So God gave this ungodly group of people the ability to capture the Israelites, to give them a wake-up call. It took them 18 years to wake up and remember God and call on him for help. God raised up Ehud, and judging from his actions and the way that he gave God the credit and the glory later in the story— Ehud was a faithful guy. He worshipped Yahweh. Now, look at this. Ehud, in this story, did nothing supernatural. He was not a prophet. He was not a preacher. He was an ordinary guy who had the gift of leadership and military prowess. That's who he was. That's what God had gifted him to do. And because of his obedient actions that happened within one day, the, they had peace. Israel had peace for two generations. Now notice it doesn't say that Ehud ruled over Israel. He did not necessarily judge Israel. Um, the, the text doesn't say that. Even though he's in the book of Judges, he was just a rescuer. And he rescued Israel from the bondage of the Moabites. And God did not have the Moabites become destroyed or annihilated or anything like that. They just became subject to Israel. And Israel did not enslave them, they were just subject to them. That's really important for us to look at. So think about yourself then. Because sometimes people think, well, I'm not called to be a preacher, I'm not called to be a teacher, I'm not called to be a worship leader. So God really doesn't have anything in store for me. There's nothing that I'm supposed to do, I guess. That is not how God works at all. He has given you the influence, the abilities, the talents, and the passions so that you can make a difference according to the specific call on your life, the reason why you exist. Now, sometimes our passions and our talents they can become idols to us, and that's a whole different thing. but those things that are immutable about us are really important for us to understand that God gave us those things as tools for his glory. All right, so give you an illustration from my own life when I felt the call to become a youth pastor, I knew. That my passion for Star Wars, I love Star Wars. I read every single Legends book ever written, and I own all of them. And I won't get rid of them, despite what my wife tells me sometimes. (laughs) I thought that going into the ministry meant that I had to give up Star Wars. And I did to an extent because there were definitely days where I idolized it and I spent more time on the Star Wars thing than I did spending time with God. My priorities weren't right, but God never intended me to totally give it up. And you know what? Today, to this day, God uses my um, nerdiness and my knowledge of all things nerd and geeky to identify and relate to the teenagers in my youth group. Even if by nature they are not nerdy, they can appreciate that stuff about me because they know it's real. And some of them are nerds now and they weren't before, but that's, that's also a, another story. God made you the way you are for a reason, for a specific reason. And Ehud, I don't know what he did before or after this event. But he was created for that day. And he was even given, his story is given to us in scriptures so that we can learn from it. Really important. God has a specific plan and purpose for you. You just have to find out what that is. And that might not be vocational ministry, but vocational ministry isn't all there is, there's so much more. And vocational ministry, by the way, is not something that you can just say, wake up one day, I think I'm going to be a pastor. That doesn't really work that way. Um, but all the pastors that I've ever met, this thing, and me too. When God called me into the ministry, I, I couldn't do anything else. Within my spirit, I knew I didn't have a choice. That was the call. And that was it. And I'll be honest with you, um, at first, I really didn't want it. My plans for my life were totally different than this. Now, I love what I'm doing. God created me for this purpose. But right away, I'll tell you, I didn't want to be obedient. But I answered the call because that's what I was created to do. All right, let's look at some apologetic stuff as part of this story as we wrap it up. I want you to think about some things within this, and you're going to have to go back and read it, I'm sure. All right, but number one, go back and look at it and ask yourself, which parts of the story was God responsible for? And which parts of the story was Ehud responsible for? Hi, right, this one's really important. I will go ahead and give you the answer, but I do want you to go back and look at it. The answer is they were both responsible all throughout, right? God is sovereign over everything. There's nothing that happens that he either doesn't cause or he allows, right? He's the author of good and of life, and he um, allows evil and suffering, right? He's got this plan of redemption, but it's not come to total fruition yet, right? Creation itself has not been redeemed. His church has not been raptured, right? But he is sovereign, all-powerful. He enabled Ehud to do what he was doing. And he had Ehud's back throughout the whole thing. If God was not there with Ehud, Ehud would not have been able to do it. But understand, Ehud was also responsible for his actions. And everything he did, he chose to do it with the free will that he was given from God. It's a tandem thing. Both are true at the same time. Now, if you're a new Christian you, maybe you aren't, you haven't heard some of these things before, so uh, we're going to talk about some other things in the Bible that as Christians we believe that are true at the same time. They're not contradictory, but this is something that exists that we need to be aware of within our own faith. So Ehud acted and God acted in tandem, both were happening at the same time. right, well, here's some other examples of something similar. So for instance, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God at the same time. It's the same thing. So it's not that Ehud was responsible 50% for his stuff and God also had 50%. It's they both had 100%. I'll let that sink in. You might say, Pastor Cameron, I'm not really sure how that makes sense. Um, I'll let you know. Okay, this is what the Bible teaches, and it says that all of the mysteries of God will be made clear to us when we see Him face to face. So I'm explaining to you what the Bible says about it. I believe it wholeheartedly, but I'm not going to um pretend that I completely understand it all the time either. I have questions, and I am so excited to get to God one day and say, Hey' Uh, how does that work, <laughs> you know? All right? Uh, there's another thing, right? So we talk about God being a trinity in church. God is three distinct persons, but God is one. We ha- we serve one God, Yahweh. But it's also three, God, Son, Holy Spirit. It's really important to understand. Does it make total sense to our finite mortal minds? no. But to believe anything different from that is heresy. It's against what the Bible actually says and teaches. And so we have to um, make a determination to believe what it says and to choose faith. And then just live knowing that one day it'll make sense and just not right now. And that's okay. All right, here's, here's another thing to consider. Think about the Ten Commandments, right? So the Fifth Commandment says, do not murder. Well, what does that say about Ehud and his assassination of the king? Was that murder? Well, let's look at it then. Well, when the Ten Commandments were given right on Mount Sinai and God said, Do not murder, you have to look at the greater context of what God is talking about. He's not talking about warfare. He's talking about rules for civil life. And even within these rules, these punishments actually say that as a part of justice, people are going to have to be killed. You also have to think, well, is that murder? The difference is individual action outside of warfare versus government action to enact justice or behave during warfare. Those are different things. So if government is having to punish somebody and the punishment is death, it's appropriate. If there is a war going on that God endorses and is behind, and there's room for um, conversation about which wars are good and which wars aren't, but if there's warfare going on, then death is appropriate because that's, that's war. War is terrible, and the only time there will not be war is when God redeems creation once and for all, and Jesus comes back. That's it. So we can expect death under those scenarios, but individually, we should not be committing premeditated murder on other human beings. You might also ask then, well, what if somebody breaks into my house and tries to harm my family? The Bible actually says that we can and should protect our families, and it might be appropriate then to use lethal force. Um, look at Exodus 21 talks about a, a thief breaking into your house in the middle of the night when it's dark. The Bible says, go ahead and kill him. You have the right, the ability to kill him. And, but during the day, you don't. Well, why is that? Well, um, at nighttime, right, you can't see. You can't tell what's going on. Um, You've you probably been, been sleeping, right? And so they're being nefarious. And the Bible says you can use lethal force. What's the difference with the daytime? The daytime, you can see what's going on. He might be able to reason with them. For us today, probably have more time to call the cops and do something about it. Like I said, there's room for conversation about these things. But understand that under this situation in the book of Judges with Ehud and the king, God was totally blessed and blessing Ehud with the actions. I mean, also understand that this land was given to them by God. And God said, You are to go to war with whoever would try to take it from you. This is your inheritance. And so, of course, I mean, yeah, God's behind it. And even though God himself doesn't say a single thing during all of this, we don't see God act a single time in all of this. What we do see is Ehud, towards the end, giving the glory to God, telling the other Israelites to give glory to God. And God blessing them for 80 years. Two whole generations. Do you know that's the longest amount of time of peace that Israel had um, in the Old Testament? Now, if I'm wrong, if you can point to something else, by all means, shoot me an email, send it in the comments. But the greater point here is made. God was behind it. God blessed it. And sometimes what is appropriate, good, and right isn't always what we think it is. And we have to be willing to set our culture down and learn more about the culture that the Bible was written in so that we can understand what God's trying to tell us so that we can apply it correctly. The last thing I want to leave you with, are there idols that you have made just as important or more important than God? And these idols are not going to be gold or bronze statues in your home. Probably if you're an American, you know, or, or even just a Westerner. But are there idols that you've made just important as God? It could be TV. For most people, I think it's their cell phone. Although cell phones, I mean, you got the Bible app and all that stuff nowadays. You know, if you are diligent about it and disciplined with it, that's good. But you need to evaluate your life. You know, even though Ehud did what he did, you notice Even still, the idols were not removed. Maybe they were ignored. We don't know that. But they were still there. And ultimately, the Israelites would pick them up again. And that's where we're going to pick up again next week with Deborah. So thanks for joining me today. And I'll talk to you next week. See you later. Praying for you.